Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, I'm Oscar Boyd. It's been a while. This is the point in the podcast where I'd normally introduce this week's topic and guest, but today I'm here to introduce one of Deep Dive's new hosts, Sean McKenna. Hello, Sean. Hi, Oscar. So if you've been listening to Deep Dive from the start, you'll know Sean as the main protagonist in our adventure to climb up Mount Fuji way back in the summer of 2019. After he successfully survived that ordeal, he then joined me for our end-of-year specials and was one of the co-hosts for our mini-series called Recultured. So you're in very, very capable hands with Sean and the rest of the team who will be joining him. Thank you. And uh, Oscar, would you like to tell us why you're passing the show over to us? Yeah, sure. So... This is actually my moment to say an official and belated goodbye to Deep Dive, which I launched way back in 2018. This summer, I moved to London to start work for Bloomberg Green, where I'm making a new podcast called Zero, which is all about climate solutions and the people getting us to a world of net zero. Before I pass over to Sean, though, I did really want to convey my heartfelt thanks to all of my guests, colleagues and listeners. I've so appreciated your help and support over the 129 episodes of Deep Dive I made. And I really hope you'll continue to support the show and its new team. So thank you very, very much. It was always a pleasure. Well, thanks very much, Oscar, for all your hard work. And I have to say that I'm glad you're here today as our first guest, since we're going to talk about the climate crisis. Now, you were in Japan for how long? It was a little over six years. Okay, so if I ask you to describe a Japanese summer to me, what words would you use? I would say something like hot, humid, muggy, like walking in a bath constantly, just uh, like a, <laughs> a steam room has escaped into the world. Give me a Japanese word. So I think the word that most people use is uh, mushiatsu, which means hot and humid. Mm. Yeah, you'd hear that all the time outside when you're wandering the streets in Tokyo. So yeah, on top of that, in August, after you had left Japan, the Japan Weather Association suggested the use of two new terms to describe the intensifying heat of the summer. So kokushobi can be translated as cruel heat day, and it would be applied to days where the temperature surpasses 40 degrees Celsius. Then we have shonetaya, which literally means super tropical night. And that would be used for nights when the temperature stays above 30 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's what I remember from the Tokyo summer, just how incredibly hot it is. And well, actually coming back to England this summer, I was incredibly surprised because we had two days which were over 40 degrees. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we kind of need those words in English as well to describe the newfound heat that we're feeling. Yeah. I think the difference between Tokyo and the UK is that at least Tokyo has aircon everywhere, but very few of the houses in the UK actually have aircon. So surviving through a 40 degree day is actually pretty unbearable. Oh my gosh. Well, rising temperatures are just one aspect of the climate crisis that is going to affect a lot of different places, which is why I think your new podcast with Bloomberg Green is one that you can get something out of no matter where you live. So first of all, why is it called Zero? So zero comes from net zero, which is the emission targets that many countries all around the world are setting themselves to reach by 2050. Okay. And basically the concept is to stop the worst effects of climate change happening we as a global society need to get as close to zero emissions as possible as soon as possible and that's really what the show is all about how we actually get to the world of zero emissions so it's very solutions focused it's meant to be looking at what's being done right now and what will be done going forward to uh, actually create the world where hopefully we have zero emissions okay and you're not actually hosting at the moment right who's the host so it's hosted by one of Bloomberg's top climate reporters. Uh, he's called Akshat Rathi. And he is just an absolute fount of knowledge on all things to do with the environment and climate and incredibly well connected. So we've had some fantastic guests so far. 
So as of this recording, I've heard the first episode, which includes an interview with Bryony Worthington, who's a member of the UK's House of Lords and wrote the UK's Climate Change Act, which was passed in 2008. Is that right? Yeah, so that act was passed in 2008. And one of the reasons we had her on as our first episode is because it's actually a really positive story. The UK has really led the world over the last 20 years in decarbonizing its economy. I think its emissions are down 40% compared to 1990 levels. Oh, wow. And so that discussion is telling the story of the Climate Change Act and how it's contributed to that decarbonization. And she helped write that act. She came on, talked us through the act, how she wrote it and engineered it to be effective, not just as a long-term target, but also to hold government to account in the short term as well. Yeah, I really took away from the fact that it was like a very positive kind of approach to the topic. But since this is deep dive from the Japan Times, I think that it's only proper we outline where Japan is on these same goals. So Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has outlined a green transformation policy that he's shorthanding as GX. GX, that sounds very fancy. It sounds like a new model of plane. (laughs) Yeah, well, the X stands for transformation. So along with hashing out who's in charge of the X and how they're going to pay for it, The Prime Minister has so far stressed the need to reduce carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions to virtually zero by 2050, with emissions at 46% from what they were in 2013 by 2030. So getting there is going to mean doing things like expanding renewable energy sources and promoting offshore wind power, speeding up the installation of fixed storage batteries, and the headline grabber here is bringing nuclear power plants back online. Yeah, that nuclear power plant's goal is so interesting because it's such a complex challenge for Japan. Up until the Fukushima disaster, which was March 11th, 2011, nuclear power actually supplied about 30% of Japan's power needs. And they actually had a target before that disaster to increase nuclear power up to 50% by 2030. But with the quake and the tsunami and the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi reactor, all of that changed. Yeah, and once the nuclear plants were shut down, a lot of Japan's energy generation switched to coal, which is one of the most polluting energy sources we have. Yeah, exactly. And as a result, Japan's emissions really spiked in the couple of years after Fukushima. And when you look forward, one of the reasons it is such an interesting topic right now is that Japan has set this 2030 energy mix target. And as part of that, nuclear power is supposed to be 20 to 22% of Japan's energy, Mm. which is still less than what it was pre-Fukushima. But if the country does manage to turn its reactors on, I think Japan could see quite a quick decarbonization of its electricity sector and as a result, a decarbonization of its kind of country and economy as a whole. Right. Because the country has restarted 10 out of 33 units so far. Is that right? That's right. And I think Kishida has a target to get even more online in time for winter this year, especially Mm. as, you know, not just Japan, but countries around the globe face this energy crunch that's due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But understandably, there's a massive amount of local opposition to nuclear reactors still nobody wants to be the next Fukushima. I'm sure if you or I were living next to a a nuclear power plant, we'd probably be very concerned about, you know, it being switched back on and the constant risk of earthquake in Japan. And the other interesting complicating factor is that Japan also has the Nuclear Regulation Authority, which is in charge of nuclear safety. And they're supposed to be independent from the government. And basically the head of that has said that they have no plans to quickly approve nuclear reactors being switched back on, even if that's what Kashida is hoping for this winter. Yeah. So given what you've covered in your work at Bloomberg Green, or even the stuff you did during your time at the Japan Times, 
Is there anything in particular that you think Japan can learn from Britain or perhaps maybe other countries? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, coming back to the episode of uh, Zero that I was talking about with Bryony Worthington, one of the main pieces of advice that she gave when she was talking about how she came up with good climate policy is basically to set out very concrete near and midterm targets. Mm. I think it's very easy for governments and politicians to say, hey, yeah, we'll deal with this in 2050. We'll set a zero emissions target by 2050. But that's still, you know, 28 years down the line. And most people saying that now won't be in office to see whether those targets are actually met or not. Yeah, that's one thing I remember from the conversation with Briney too, was that she was kind of like stressing the point that laws stick around much longer than politicians. Mm. And I think she was talking in reference to the fact that Britain's had quite a few prime ministers in the most recent cycle. Is there anything else that you think Japan can take from Britain? Well, it's really interesting coming back because on a day-to-day level, having been away from the UK for that six-year period... Coming back, I've really noticed the transformation with electric cars. There are so many electric cars, both out on the streets and in the UK, they're all marked with a special green tag on their number plate. So you can see them really easily and obviously you see them being charged out in the street. And that's something which I hadn't seen really being adopted en masse uh, while I was in Japan. But even better than electric cars, because while electric cars are part of the solution, they still require a lot of construction and mining and elements to make them. The amount of cycling post the pandemic has also increased by about 25% in London, which is amazing to see. Uh, And probably the final thing I'd say is that it's just so much easier to eat a non-meat diet here. You know, Japan doesn't eat tons and tons of meat relative to some countries, but it's very hard to avoid it altogether. Whereas going to restaurants or cafes or anything in the UK, it's very easy to pick out what is normally a very good vegetarian option. So that's good if you want to kind of reduce your emissions from a diet perspective. Yeah. So where can people find Zero, And can you give us a preview of anything else that you have coming up? Well, so you can find it on, uh, well, whatever podcast platform you're currently listening to this fantastic episode of Deep Dive on. Uh, So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the rest of it. Uh, And in terms of what's coming up, I think at the time that this episode goes out, we'll have just released our episode, which features an interview with Bill Gates. And one of the causes he's really championing at the moment is climate change. So that conversation is all about the innovation he's pursuing and the venture capital fund that he's set up to try and pursue all these climate innovations, which hopefully will, again, lead us to that net zero world. Later in the year, we're going to COP27. So that's in November. And that's the big climate conference that's taking place in Egypt. And as well as that, we'll be doing a climate tech startups tour of the US. So, yeah, very busy schedule and hopefully lots of fantastic episodes to come. Cool. I look forward to listening to those. But more importantly, thanks very much for coming back to Deep Dive one last time. Thank you. Japan is a country that is under constant threat of natural disasters. From earthquakes and tsunami to volcanoes and typhoons, living here means some kind of calamity could strike at any minute, and the public seems to have responded with a whatever happens happens kind of mentality. It's easy to think, then, that maybe people here view the climate crisis like any of these other existential threats that hang over their heads. Writer Hanai Takahashi thinks there may be another reason that explains a kind of climate apathy that exists in Japan. One that is the result of the mainstream media not reporting on the crisis in the way it should. Last month, she spoke to Yuka Natori of Media is Hope a group of environmentalists that is trying to get climate discussions onto television, into the newspapers, and maybe even onto the big screen. Hanai, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks, John. 
Hanai, what is the main problem with climate reporting in Japan at the moment? Well, it was the case that a lot of climate stories here tended to have a financial angle to them, or focuses on energy conservation. Mm. Often, there are pieces that allow businesses to simply boast about their sustainability efforts, though those efforts are sometimes for show. Uh, that's something known as SDG washing or greenwashing, right? Yes, so Media's Hope, who I spoke to, is trying to improve the content of climate reporting here in hopes that it will better educate the public on the climate crisis. Media's Hope isn't just focusing its efforts on journalists, though, is that right? Right. The idea is that one news item isn't going to increase the discussion. Mm. Eventually, they want climate issues to be a topic of conversation in film and on variety bangami. Ah, you mean like variety shows, the primetime television shows that are hosted by comedians and other, like what we call talents. That's right. So did you see the Netflix film Don't Look Up? Uh, yeah, I did. So a lot of Japanese people saw it too, and many of them didn't even notice it was about climate change. Mm. And they just saw it as a comedy film, and some people didn't even find it funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Media's Hope's Yuka Natori, who you spoke to for the piece... Does she see any cause for hope? Well, she says coverage in the Japanese media has gotten better over the past two years, but she hopes that the audiences can demand more. That's how she got started by picketing NHK. That's the national broadcaster. Yes, she picketed them and encouraged them to do more. The Japanese public doesn't tend to respond to angry protests. Instead, they like more positive marches. In fact, one of the things Yuka said that we can all do is to start a climate discussion group with people you know, kind of like book clubs. There, you can discuss things like how to make your own life more eco-friendly. And then, hopefully, that leads to bigger actions. Hanai Takahashi, thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. We'll put a link to Hanai's interview with Yuka in the show notes. On the topic of what you can do to educate yourself more on the climate crisis, Writer Eric Margolis spoke to such groups as the Kiko Network and Fridays for Future on where non-Japanese people living in Japan can focus their energy. We'll be back with more from him in a moment. Eric Margolis has written about climate issues for the New Republic, Slate, and, of course, the Japan Times. His latest piece for us was titled, What Can We Do to Fight the Climate Crisis from Japan?, and it outlines some of the things people like you and I can do as part of that fight. Eric, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you for having me. Now, we've been very much focused on the pandemic for the past two years, and your piece was a way to refocus some of our attention back onto the climate crisis. What was your biggest takeaway from working on this article? It's that we're all capable of responding to this climate crisis in our own way. You know, so we're already at this stage where the climate crisis is actively causing these huge environmental, economic, and cultural impacts. There's a level of urgency. You know, we're seeing massive damages from disasters in terms of human lives from typhoons, droughts, floods, heat waves. But everyone is capable of stepping up in their own way. Hmm. I think there's a common misconception that caring about environmental issues is sort of a privileged stance. Mm -hmm. In the research for the story, I found that a real key to solving the crisis is recognizing that all of us are capable of doing something sustainably you know, on the individual level. So maybe that's going vegan, maybe it's switching to a greener commute, maybe it's joining climate marches. But sort of everyone has a way of finding their own niche that's something that they can continue to do sustainably. Mm. And yet at the same time, I do think that the most important thing is to push politicians and large companies to take action. 
because ultimately drastic policy is going to be the thing that solves the climate crisis quickly. So yeah, advocacy, political action, those still need to be the number one priority. Okay, so speaking of advocacy, who did you speak to when you were researching your piece? I spoke to two groups in particular, uh, Fridays for Future and the Kiko Network. So Fridays for Future was the group started by Greta Thunberg and has branches across Japan. Mm -hmm. And Kiko Network is a Japanese NGO that works on climate policy and advocacy. So they basically conduct research and make proposals for local governments, Japanese government, and international climate policy as well. Okay. If you don't speak Japanese, can you volunteer for these groups? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually based in Nagoya, and uh, the Fridays for Future team there is really open and active, and they have a lot of non-Japanese-speaking volunteers or participants. Mm -hmm. And Kiko actively recruits volunteers as well to assist with research and organize events. And uh, Ken Rotoda at Kiko told me that they have several non-Japanese interns and volunteers right now, actually. Okay. But that being said, it is funny because um, one of the things that we, you know, us Gaikokujin here in Japan can do to fight the climate crisis is getting better at Japanese. Huh. Why is that? Well, like I mentioned earlier, we are at the stage where major policy change needs to happen right away. And getting that conversation going in Japanese is the best way to make that conversation happen, you know, here in Japan. Mm. So by getting better at Japanese, that's the best way to talk about climate issues with Japanese people, you know, and friends, family here in Japan. Okay, so I just want to get this straight. When you say talk to your Japanese friends, you don't mean like you're not lecturing them, right? No, no. I mean, these are your friends, family, coworkers. You know, you'll have conversations about the things that you care about. So from that perspective, it's just important to arm yourself with the vocabulary and the capability to talk about climate, climate change, climate politics. You know, uh, something interesting from the article is that uh, Mr. Taura from Kiko uh, stressed this point, uh, and he was saying that because we consume information in English and the English media that's often not available in Japan, it gives uh, foreign residents a different perspective and sometimes a deeper perspective than people in Japan have just from the local media here. So it's important to share that information with Japanese friends. Okay, so it sounds like Mr. Taura wants us to spread the word about climate change like we might spread the word about the new Game of Thrones spinoff or like a cafe we've discovered. Yeah, sure, exactly. And I mean, the key thing is that, you know, Japanese family and friends and coworkers here can actually vote, whereas most of mm. us can't. So, you know, obviously that that sucks, but it's no excuse to not be engaged with politics and policy that's still going to make a big difference in your life here. So, uh, you know, when I vote, I think about what's going to be best for me, my family, my friends, and the world. So, you know, I like to think that my Japanese friends and family here will take a similar stance. Okay. You actually just wrote a piece about how to start this conversation in Japanese, didn't you? Yes, yes. It's very important to make sure that, you know, you have the right grammatical structures to express your opinions, and then, of course, the vocabulary of you know, climate and environmental issues to be able to express those opinions and share that information. Right. And, you know, people always think about whatever hits closest home to them. So it's not going to be as effective to just talk about climate issues in English and in your home country. Um, You know, you need to improve your speaking skills to be able to talk about these issues, but also reading skills to consume the local media and understand the local ways that climate change is affecting Japan you know, we do live here. So what happens here will affect us whether or not we can vote. Right. So it's good for us to kind of know more about the flash floods that are going on and say like around Hiroshima, than kind of trying to drive home our points with an example from say the United States or even Europe. 
Exactly. And there's always going to be much deeper information available about these local issues in Japanese than you know, the small reports that are made available in English. Gotcha. So like if they want to follow up, then they're going to be able to do so and they'll have access to that information in Japanese. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You wrote a piece at the start of last year titled The True Cost of the Climate Crisis in Japan. In it, you outlined some of the major problems that Japan specifically will face in the future. Where is the climate crisis going to hit us most? I think where it's really going to hit Japan is the way in which extreme weather events collide with economic and cultural impacts, you know, from those extreme weather events. Mm. So we've seen, and this is, you know, a scientific fact is that rainfall events and typhoons have gotten more extreme and more frequent in us and our, to us in our daily lives, that can just be a sort of inconvenience, but it's going to mean more infrastructure damage, which can drive up municipal budgets and pinch cities economically. And that's going to reduce overall quality of life in the cities that we live. Right. Another example of this is like with extreme heat waves, you know, when it's 37, 38 degrees out for a week, it's annoying and expensive to run the air conditioning, but these are causing excess deaths. And they're also going to be destroying rice crops and fruit crops that are sort of the, the famed local products and sometimes economic backbones of regions across Japan, whether we're talking Aomori or Nagano. Okay. And when you're saying excess deaths, you mean from like Causes of like heat stroke? Yeah, from causes of heat stroke. Right, yeah. right. I mean, this year we had the hottest June on record, and it sort of cut rainy season short in this bizarre way. And while it did end up raining a lot over the rest of the summer, at the time there were real concerns brought up in the local media that the reservoirs wouldn't get full because of the short rainy season, and we could even have a drought. And we're seeing droughts in other parts of the world right now, in Europe and the United States, for example. Yeah. And I mean, thinking about how much rain Japan gets, it's almost unfathomable to think that we could have a drought here. Yeah. But the climate crisis, that's what it does. It makes the impossible possible in, in a bad way. Right. Since writing that piece, so that was about a year and a half ago, have you seen any signs of hope that Japan is kind of taking this issue seriously? To be honest, and this has sort of been the case for a long while, but Japan and the governing LDP are taking a very moderate approach to the climate crisis. Mm. So they're acknowledging this is a serious issue, uh, both in government and many large businesses have done this as well. But none of these uh, major power players are taking measures anywhere close to substantial enough to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees, which is what scientists say that we need. Mm. So I think the most hope that I feel comes when I see young people and honestly people of all ages joining marches with Fridays for Future, you know, speaking up about the climate crisis. Governments and businesses ultimately have to react to what the people want and what we demand. So when we do demand action, eventually they will have no choice but to take it. Eric Margolis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you'd like to read more of Eric's work on the climate, then check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Before we wrap up, I'd like to bring Oscar Boyd back to take us out with the fantastic catchphrase he came up with for Deep Dive. Oscar? Thanks, Sean. And yeah, thanks again to everyone for listening. I really hope you do give all your support to Deep Dive and the new team. I'm sure they're going to put out loads of brilliant episodes to come. And yeah, one last time, Potsukare-sama. <laughs> and let me give you an actual for all your hard work that you put into this podcast. We're really going to miss you. This episode was edited by Dave Cortez, and we had research help from Hiriawako. Our theme song is by 4L. 
See you next week. 